Thanks for joining us here at the Light San Diego podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. For more information, please visit our website, lightsandiego.com. Well, today is part two of our brand new series, Future Church. Uh, last week we kicked it off. If you missed it, please go back and listen as that was kind of a significant Sunday as we kind of lay out the next eight to nine weeks as we rediscover and dream again about God's vision for the church here and now in the West 2021. What is that God has in his heart for us to do? And I'm thrilled about this series for a number of reasons. One of those is we get to partner with Park Hill Church and Neighbors Church Um, along with uh, getting to be able to use uh, some of the work and content from Bridgetown and Reality San Francisco. Uh, Really just humbled to be a part of this broader conversation that's going on. Um, And today's kind of part two of the introduction before we get into the eight different themes. It has to do with the identity of the church. Last week we talked about how the church is Jesus's plan A, for bringing about his kingdom to the world. Um, That's a massive statement, especially when we live in a world that many of the people watching this have experienced hurt from people within the church and even the institution itself. And the encouragement through this series is rather than dismissing the church, it is rediscovering the beauty and the intention that God always desired for the church to possess. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 10 and 11, Paul writes this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He says his intent, Jesus' intent, was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known. What a statement. And Paul, as he's getting ready to conclude this theological gem of the first three chapters of Ephesians, says that it was Jesus' intent that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God would be made known. Here's the surprising part to to the next part of the verse. To the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. This verse is a strong, statement that the church is an act of war against the rulers and the authorities of the kingdom of darkness. Now, we oftentimes consider the church to be somewhere you intend, a community you belong to, an institution that you're semi-familiar with, But how often do we think about the church as the mechanism for Jesus to make war against the evil powers of this world, displaying the manifold wisdom of God? What a high calling. And I think oftentimes the church gets shortchanged and cut short because we immediately think about that religion or the church has to do with the war that's here and now and fleshly and it's political, it's this or it's that. But it's so much more than that. There's a cosmic war going on and the definitive blow was dealt at the cross 
but the continued victory is laid out through you and I and how we live, displaying not only to the world, but even to the rulers and the authorities of darkness, the wisdom and the beauty and the goodness of God through the gospel. And I think that's one of my desires today as we talk about re-identifying what is the role of the church and if we can recapture that beautiful vision that Jesus had and the authors of the New Testament described to us, then there could be something powerful that exists for our world, what can be seen and even in the realm that we can't. There's a New York Times article that was sent to me. It says, Why We Need to Start Talking About God by Tish Harrison Warren. And in this article, she reflects It says, Karl Barth, a 20th century Swiss theologian, is credited with saying that Christians must live our lives with a Bible in one hand and a newspaper in another. Barth, who was a leader of a group of Christians in Germany resisting Hitler, understood that faith is not a pious, protective bubble shielding us from the urgent needs of the world. Rather, it is the very impetus that leads us into active engagement with society. People of faith must immerse themselves in messy questions of how to live faithfully in a particular moment with, a part, with particular headlines calling for a particular attention and particular responses. One of the interesting things about the church is although we are engaging in a cosmic, eternal battle that is ultimately going to be that is won through Jesus Christ, There's also something incredibly contextual about the church. That we are called in our city, on this date, in this year, in this millennia, to be the active victorious presence of Jesus in the world around us. How do we do that? And what I'd like to submit to you today is that what the church is supposed to be today It was back then. If we can capture its true identity, it will help form what it means to be today. So, four things we see the New Testament explicitly describe the church as. Number one, a faithful bride. Number two, a functional body. Number three, a familial community. And number four, a filled temple. These four pillars make up the foundation of the church that need to be recaptured and lived into. Let's work through all four of these. Number one, that the church is a faithful bride. We are the people of God. It's important to note out that the scripture begins its opening pages with a covenant ceremony. It, in, it opens up with a man and a woman in a garden, a picture of marriage, and we're introduced to covenant language. And it's this, this promise, this union. You fast forward another 12 chapters and we are introduced to the world turned over on itself because of sin. Yet God in his faithfulness calls a man named Abram and says, I will make a nation out of you that will be a blessing to the world, will show the world who I am. And then goes on to proceed with this covenant. The interesting thing about covenants is they're not just an agreement. They're an agreement that is so binding that if that agreement is broken, that there are very real consequences. 
But what's unique about this covenant, if you read Genesis 15, is that because of the way that this ceremony is set up, God essentially says, I'm committing myself to you and I want you to commit yourself to me. But if there's any unfaithfulness, I'll take the blame. Fast forward another 400 years and the people of Israel had been enslaved in Egypt now for about 400 years. And God hears their cry, brings freedom and redemption, and once again calls the covenant people to himself. And again, this is wedding language. Listen to Exodus 6, if you read through 6 and 7. There's four things that are called out. There's four things that God says to Israel. He says, I will take you out, I will rescue you, I will redeem you, and I will take you to me. Those four statements God makes to his people are wedding statements. It's the statement that the, bride, the groom makes towards the bride. Well, fast forward, and Yahweh clearly demonstrates his faithfulness to his bride, his people, Israel, and Israel clearly makes it known that she is unfaithful towards him, which is all of us, unable to keep the covenant. It was within this, throughout the Old Testament, we continue to see God's faithfulness through this. And then we're introduced to Jesus, whose very first miracle was a wedding. It's a picture of Jesus coming in as the groom to redeem his bride. And by doing that, two things happen at the cross. Number one, the consequence for covenant unfaithfulness was poured out upon Jesus rather than his people. The second thing is in that same night, Jesus says, I'm making a new covenant. And at that moment, the covenant extends and expands beyond just the people of Israel to anyone who professes faith in Jesus Christ to be a part of his people. So we are now grafted into this beautiful heritage of the covenant people of God. And the last thing I want to point out, which is so significant, is that the scripture ends with the wedding ceremony. Listen to this. Revelation 19, hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for, here it is, the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. This is such a beautiful image, how the, the scriptures start with the wedding and end with the wedding, that really the entire story arc of the scripture is God moving towards his people as a groom to his bride. And so it should not catch us off guard that one of the major analogies the New Testament authors make about the church is we are his bride, making herself ready. So the question that we need to ask ourselves is, are we living into our identity as a faithful bride to our committed groom? Karl Barth, again in his book, Church Dogmatic, says, the church exists to set up in the world a new sign which is a radically dissimilar to the world's own manner and which contradicts it in a way which is full of compromise. Uh, let me give you an example here. 
Um, when Jen and I got married, we dressed up uh, to the nines. She, if you look pictures back 15 years ago, stunning. The dress, the veil, the jewelry, the hair, the makeup. I, on the other hand, not so much. I decided to make a decision to wear a white oversized uh, suit with puka shell necklaces and a pair of white rainbow sandals. Yes, sandals and a suit and puka shell necklaces. I don't know what was going on in 2006, but um, all that to say, that wedding dress, along with that suit, are been permanently pressed and tucked away to preserve. And it's, they hold value, they're beautiful, but they're never seen. And I think sometimes that has kind of become the identity of the church as a bride, is that the dress is tucked away, it's pressed, it's neat, it's clean, we don't want to stain it. But you see, as a faithful bride, we are to continue to live out our identity. So on our 15-year wedding anniversary that happened last month, we decided to take kind of like new wedding pictures. Um, and rather than just doing the classic, of course, we just took a little bit more of an art, artistic turn of it. And Jen has this gorgeous dress, and um, she wanted me to buy this brown suit, so I bought this like brown vintage suit. Um, and the idea is to take pictures of it, but we decided on our anniversary night, like, hey, let's just dress up. And we went to Juna Jolie um, in Carlsbad. And then before, I'm like, let's walk along the beach. Now, I, I don't know if you guys ever tried this. You should do it. We dressed up fully in suit and tie, fancy dress, hair and makeup. Jen and I, hand in hand, walked down Tamarack. And as we're walking hand in hand, people can't help but turn and look and be like, what, what is going on? People are like walking by and like, congratulations? Like, thank you, 15 years. And um, ended up running into like a whole youth group. I, I knew some of the youth leaders and everyone's, it was just so peculiar walking down the beach in a suit and tie and fancy dress. And I can't ha help but imagine as I read these texts and I think about the story arc of scripture of a bride making herself ready, that when the church lives into its full potential as a faithful bride, it will turn heads when we refuse to turn to other loves, to give ourselves to idols, to continue to practice unfaithfulness towards the Lord, no matter what cultural pressure we face, but we commit ourselves to saying, Jesus, you are it for me. It will turn heads. It was never meant to be pressed and tucked away into a box called religion. It was meant to be worn out and about so that as we prepare ourselves as the bride, it draws people into what is this beautiful love story that God's been telling. In John Tyson's book, Beautiful Resistance, he says this, the church can be beautiful because grace is beautiful. The church can renew her calling because God loves her with an undying love. Beauty can resist brokenness because of the passion of the groom. The question is, will we respond to Jesus' passion for us and be faithful in our generation? I'm just going to pose that question again. We have a faithful groom 
Will we respond to Jesus's passion for us and be faithful in our generation? The second identifying mark of the early church, I should just say the biblical church is not just a faithful bride, it is a functional body. Paul in his letter to the Colossians Speaking of Jesus, says he is before all things and in him all things hold together and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead so that in everything we might have the supremacy of Christ. But what a beautiful description. He is the head. We are the body, which you cannot separate the two, which should not surprise us when that same author, Paul, when he was converted on his way to go persecute the church, Jesus had already died and rose again, is interrupted by Jesus on the road to Tarsus, and he says this, I'm sorry, the road to Damascus said, he fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? How fascinating that Paul's persecution of the church was so personal to Jesus that he could confront him and say, why are you persecuting me? He doesn't say, why are you persecuting my followers? Why are you persecuting the church? For Jesus, you can't separate the head and the body. They are fused together. And when we understand the notion that we are a functional body, part of that idea is functional that we know who the head is, but who are you? And who am I? What's our role? Paul, in another letter to the Corinthians, says, the eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty while other presentable parts need no special treatment. But God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Now, you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. This is an incredibly beautiful picture in two regards. One is I don't have to pretend to play your role and you don't have to pretend to play mine. But we do both have to live into our function. And it's critical. If we don't live as a, if we just live as a, a body without function, then we will not accomplish what Jesus intended for us to function C.S. Lewis, in his essay in The Efficacy of Prayer, says, God seems to do nothing of himself which he can possibly delegate to his creatures. He commands us to do slowly and blunderingly what he could do perfectly and in the twinkling of an eye. What a mystery. What a mystery. We, we have become so polluted by a culture of efficiency and successism that we assume God operates the same way, that he only uses the strong, he only uses the influential, when a matter of fact, scripture speaks largely to the opposite narrative of that. Philip Yancey is an amazing Christian writer, 
talks about his experience that he had in Nepal in his book on prayer. He says this, I'm ashamed to say my first thought was she's a beggar and she wants money. My wife, who has worked among the down and out, had much more holy reaction. Without hesitation, she bent down to the woman and put her arm around her. The old woman rested her head against Janet's shoulder and began singing a song in Nepali, a tune that we all instantly recognized. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Don Maya is one of our most devoted church members, the physical therapist later told us. Most of our patients are Hindus, but we have a little Christian chapel here, and Don Maya comes every time the door opens. She's a prayer warrior. She loves to greet and welcome every visitor who comes to Green Pastures, and no doubt she heard us talking as we walked along the corridor. I love this image that Philip Yancey describes as he's in Nepal, this woman who was in uh, that leprosy had just done such ravaging of her body, describes her that she dragged herself there on her elbows, and he just dismissed her absolutely dismissed this woman as a beggar and he had to be told oh no she's one of the most valuable members of our church community and i would just encourage us that the church has to be a place that honors the people and the roles that culture has disregarded because if we don't then we will lose the beauty of a functional body I wanted to celebrate a couple of the ways I've seen this happen in our church. A couple who recently got married here in this very chapel um, experienced just a um, just tragic turn of events with um, finding out that she had meningitis, was in the hospital, and was, was in, within an inch of her life. And we, I got a text from their open table leader saying, did you hear about them? And I said, no. And he said, we need to pray. So we began to pray, and God began to just do miraculous, bona fide miraculous events, things that they were suspecting could lead to being fully paralyzed after prayer and fasting ended up being completely removed on the MRI the next day. And as they went home from the hospital two weeks later, it was their open table that showed up with groceries and goodies, flowers and gifts to welcome them home. These are people that they've met within the past year or two, extending this thing of as they are in need, as they are in a place of longing, that someone will come alongside and remind them of their worth and beauty and value. Think about the two open tables that I heard that were saying, hey, we need to get some backpack supplies for some children in Mexico. And within two hours, two open tables split the cost, raised the money, and were able to get every single supply needed that people were longing to get. I think about the call that I got last month of a graduate from Generate Hope who's been rescued out of human trafficking, went through the holistic rehabilitation process and landed her own apartment and that Light Church, you were able to pay for that apartment to be furnished. I just think about these stories 
of brothers and sisters coming together and saying, I want to fill in what's lacking. I want to bring support and show honor even when society has dismissed and even when hope seems lost. What a beautiful picture of a functional body. Third thing, the Bible talks about the church being a familial community. It talks about the church being a new family. Jesus himself, and Luke 8 says that Jesus' mother and brothers came to see him, but they were not able to get near him because of the crowd. Someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to see you. And if you, if you know anything about Eastern culture, there's a massive amount of honor surrounding your parents and siblings. He replied, my mother and brother are those who hear God's word and put it into practice. He was not diminishing or dishonoring his mother or brothers. He was rather placing honor and inviting anyone who does the will of God to become brothers and sisters. Did you know that the most common title given to followers of Jesus in the New Testament is not Christian? It's brother and sister. We are given this new familial identity that we belong to this community. And if you know anything about family, you know that it's messy. You know that um, our families sometimes see the worst of ourselves. But family at its best makes room for grace. So how do we do that well? How do we be a faithful bride and a functional body? But probably, probably the hardest one in this is how do we be a family? Because this is the one thing that has been taken out from our socio kind of climate in the past 20, 30, 40, 50 years is any sense of a nuclear family. So how do we recreate what we haven't seen well? Well, I want to just encourage you with a few simple things. Number one, it begins with a commitment to be devoted to one another. And in that commitment to one another, uh, two things that it will take a lot of. Number one, repentance and reconciliation. You are entering in into a covenant community of people who are fallen and broken, and it will require of you and of them repentance and reconciliation. The same way there's not a week that goes by that there are not people within my family who are repenting and reconciling, oftentimes multiple times a day. This is what family does, and we must be willing to do that. The second thing is we must be good at listening and loving. Listening is so critical and something that largely we have lost the art of, especially with the onslaught of the technological revolution. But if we take the time, which again is another problem we don't have much of, but if we take the time to listen and we take the intentionality to love, if we make it a practice to repent and make it a practice to reconcile, then we will begin to rediscover what it means to be family. We don't need to put on all matching denim jackets and be barefoot in the sand to take a family picture that no one really enjoyed anyways. It's the messy, the gritty of just saying, I'm committed to you because Jesus is committed to me. You are my brother, my sister. Let me read you these words in Colossians. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, 
kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Um, if you're looking for a passage of scripture memorized, make it that one. Colossians 3, 12 through 14. This is the map of how to be the family of God. And it doesn't begin with perfectionism. It begins with love and compassion, humility, gentleness, and patience, and lots of forgiveness. And the last one is this, that we are a filled temple. Uh, to be honest, this probably deserves a sermon of its own, but let me give you a quick flyby here. The temple of God is a, the center of the story of God all throughout Scripture. A matter of fact, the Garden of Eden by many scholars is believed to have the makings of a cosmic temple. And a temple is a place where God and humanity meet. And this really again shows the story arc of Scripture. It is a story of God moving towards his humanity. And this temple is introduced in the garden. And it isn't until Israel comes out of Egypt hundreds of years later that God, in his love for them, tells them to create a tabernacle, which is a mobile tent temple. It's a mobile tent. And as he's doing this, he creates this beautiful space that will travel with them so God's presence never leaves. The next thing we see is that that mobile tabernacle eventually becomes a permanent temple out of the desire of David, but fulfilled by his son Solomon. And what's amazing about the garden the tabernacle, and the temple. Every single one of them has a moment where the presence of God fills it. Whether it's the spirit of God hovering over the darkness and creating beauty and order, whether it's the, the smoke, the pillar of smoke and fire coming and consuming the, the holy of holies within the tabernacle, or whether it's the dedication of the temple of Solomon, where after years and years of building, all of a sudden God's glory fills that place. But one of the tragic points in Israel's story is after the destruction of the temple, even after rebuilding the temple, there's one gaping hole in the story, and that is the presence of God. Which is why the opening lines of John's gospel, hundreds of years after the fall to Babylon, and then Persia, and then Greece, and then Rome, says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling, literally spread out his tent, tabernacled among us. We've seen his glory. The glory of the one and only son who became the father full of grace and truth. This is huge. The temple, although it had been in disrepair, and in that moment, Herod was in the middle, about 40 years into building the most magnificent thing that Herod the Great ever built in the temple, all of a sudden John has a reflection. He says, no, no, no. God's glory showed up in Jesus, not in a temple. Which again, if you fast forward till after the death and resurrection of Jesus, what do you see is on the cross that the temple torn from top to bottom, this representation of God's presence isn't in that place. And then the Spirit of God filling the disciples in the early church on the day of Pentecost, 
breathing his life and sending them out empowered to go and be witnesses into Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And it was the birthday of the church that the Spirit of God was no longer showing up in a place but filling his people. It's important to know again how the scripture ends. Revelation 21 says, I did not see a temple in the city. It's talking about the new creation, the new Jerusalem. Because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and the Lamb is its lamp. So think about this. If the entirety of Scripture is telling the story and retelling the story of a temple that's being filled until we get to the church and it's no longer it's no longer a building but it is a people filled with God's presence pointing towards new creation where there is no more temple because God's presence is now with man that means our inheritance means that we look more like heaven than we do the old Jerusalem we are the opportunity for the world to get a piece of heaven that our communities, our faithfulness as a bride, our functionality as a body, right, are all things that point to our, our identity as a family, are all allowing people to have a glimpse and a taste of the beauty of heaven. This is the beauty of the church. John Tyson, again, in his book, Beautiful Resistance, says, This is the most incredible claim in human history. The incarnation meant God with us, but the coming of the Spirit means God in us. Through the death of Jesus on the cross, we have become the place where God dwells. The church is the temple of God, embodying the presence of God on earth. Can others see that in us? Can I just ask you that question again? Can others see that? When they see us, I know we can all think about that person. We're like, oh man, God's definitely in them. But when they see us, the bride, the body, the temple, the family, do they see the spirit of God resting in us? I want to tell you part two of Philip Yancey's story of that woman they met, Don Maya. He says, a few months later, we heard that Dunmaya had died. Close to my desk, I keep a photo that I snapped just as she was singing to Janet. I see two beautiful women, my wife smiling sweetly, wearing a brightly colored Nepali outfit she had bought that day before, holding in her arms an old crone who would flunk any beauty test ever devised except the one that mattered most. Out of that deformed, hollow shell of a body, the light of God's presence shines out. The Holy Spirit found a home. Out of that deformed, hollow shell of a body, the light of God's presence shines out. The Holy Spirit found a home. we're a body and sometimes we may feel deformed and hollow but the Holy Spirit has found a home and it's time for us as a church to reclaim these four pillar identities 
But in order for us to do that as a community, we must begin to do this as individuals that come together with one voice and say, yes, I want to be a faithful bride to my groom. Yes, I want to be a functional part of the body. Yes, I want to be a familial community. I want to commit myself to other broken, flawed individuals through love and selflessness and reconciliation. And yes, Holy Spirit, fill me. Would we be your temple? Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we stand as a church, whether we are in different living rooms or cars around the nation, whether we're joining at the theater or the chapel on Sunday, we ask you now, would you come and fill us? Would you form us, Lord Jesus, into a new family? Would you empower us to be a functional part of your body, Lord Jesus. And Lord Jesus, we ask that you would give us the strength to be faithful the same way you've been faithful to us. Fill us, Holy Spirit. Make your home in us. Of all the negative things that have been said about your church, Lord, we want to be renewed. We don't want to fall into the trap of cynicism and resentment. God, we want to fall into grace, expectation, and renewal. So come and do it again. Do it in our church. Do it in Light Church and Park Hill and Neighbors. Do it here in San Diego. Do it in our nation. Do it in our world. Holy Spirit, come. We make room. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for joining us here at the Light San Diego podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. For more information, please visit our website, lightsandiego.com.